Pastor Mai, good afternoon and welcome to this second weekly episode of Perspective, your view of the world we live in on the Isle of Man of the 21st century. William King joins me in the studio. I am Dolan Mercer, here with you until two o'clock for my second stab at this, so the first attempt can't have been too bad. Last week, we looked at two public consultations which opened on Wednesday the 6th of February and will remain open for another month or so about potential changes to the regulation of cannabis on the Isle of Man. One is to do with the use of cannabis derivatives for medicinal purposes, and the other concerns the cultivation of industrial hemp on the island. To find out more and to take part in those consultations, head to gov.im cannabis. As part of that discussion, we were joined by the Minister of Health and Social Care, David Ashford, MHK, and we'll be hearing from him again very shortly. That's because this week's programme is all about Nobles Hospital, which has found itself in the headlines this week after an eventful oral evidence session of the Public Accounts Committee. Six politicians make up that committee, Speaker of the House of Keys, Dewan Watterson, who is chair, MHK's Rob Callister and Chris Robertshaw, plus MLC's Tim Crookall, David Cretney and Jane Poole-Wilson. On Wednesday, the panel heard from two key individuals from the Health Department as part of its ongoing inquiry into what has been coined overspending at Nobles. This oral evidence session, one year on from the committee's first report on the matter, was designed to see what progress has been made since it was published in January last year. The two individuals in question were Chief Executive Officer Dr Malcolm Couch and his deputy Mrs Michaela Morris. Around half an hour into the hearing, Mr Crookall asked the crucial question. Can I ask, uh, will the department come in on budget for 1819? Don't tell me you weren't expecting the question. Our current financial situation um, is that we genuinely feel our performance is better than last year. Um, If if I look across um, the different uh, directorates and and divisions in the department, uh, some of them are doing remarkably well compared to their budget. So if if I look at um, corporate services, public health, children and family services, uh, community commission services, etc., they're actually in the black in terms of uh, spending against um, what was expected. We still have um, challenges with government catering services. We've actually integrated those into the hospitals directorate now so that they're, they're, they're worse than we expect them to be. But if, if this doesn't sound like a paradox, they're, they're, they're better than they were last year. Our, our problem continues to be Nobles Hospital, which is, is it's overspending currently about 10% versus his budget, but that is enough to tip... Um, the the department into the red. Ten percent is what then? What amount? Nearly ten million quid. Uh, I think. Well, our, our latest, our latest, uh, that that's it's, it's almost in millions. I think the ten percent variance is is not far off not a ten million pounds. Can I can I no. intervene there? It's Sorry, just that's on top of the ten million pounds additional that the yeah. government's given last year. That, that I'm, I'm giving you figures there of, of our current performance against this year's budget. So it will, so it will be. Will be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but bear in mind, Chair, that um, the Treasury Minister said in his budget speech uh, last February that notwithstanding that we were being given uh, an additional funding element, there was still um, a £7 million efficiency target in our budget. Can I just elaborate on that? Because just to be very clear um, for Hansard, last year you received an extra £10 million in your budget. 
and expected to make seven million pounds savings. I think it was something on those seven and a half million pounds savings. We also received um, a supplementary payment as well, which so realistically you start on a very positive figure to start the financial year. You're saying by the end of this financial year, you're going to still be around £10 million. I didn't say that, Mr Collister, no. OK, so what? how will, do you I think... Said, how said the, I said Noble's Hospital um, has a significant overspend. OK. And Other that... divisions and directorates are underspend. So where we're looking at the moment is that um, our, our outturn is... It, it varies, and, and this is very difficult, and I, I used to say this when I was CFO, looking at the, the whole of the uh, government's expenditure, to see exactly where we'll be at the year-end. At the moment, we're looking like we're overspending on an annualised basis at about £3.5 However, not all of that is related to performance. So I'm sure that members will be aware the, the Treasury allowance for uh, salary increases in this year's budget is 1%. So far, the Public Service Commission's um, employees have been awarded effectively a 3% pay award. It's a pence per hour pay award, but it, it comes out at about 3%. <coughs> we haven't for 18-19 yet settled with our Manx Pay Terms and Conditions National Joint Council group of staff, which is all of our nurses and allied health professionals and, and what might be called manual workers, um, nor have we settled with our, our doctors. The issue, therefore, is that if, if we... Um, <coughs> have a 3% settlement against a 1% uh, allowance, a very large part of that 3.5 million forecast is, is down to pay awards beyond what we were allowed. And we um, negotiate with MPTC and with doctors, so the department is, is a, a stationed employer for those people. We, as a leadership team, or, or my minister as, as a politician, are not involved in the negotiation of PSC pay awards. So there's always that sort of um, contingency around that. So PSC. PSC, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if parts of the department are doing very well and obviously some are overspending, are you scaling back or cutting back some of the services that you're providing to try and come in closer to budget? And if so, which... Where are you cutting back, scaling back? Yes, yes thank you. I think um, we submitted a cost improvement programme for you to have a look at um, in advance so you may have seen that already but the, the schemes that we have uh, for the last quarter so from January till till the end of March are listed on that uh, spreadsheet and there are sorry 15, 15 aspects um, of those so we have uh, one of the largest areas is to uh, is a rescheduling of non-urgent elective tertiary referrals um, for the for the last quarter um, we are, we've made um, impact by not having a um, backfill of a diabetic specialty area um, similarly with rheumatology um, we've had no backfill um, for the locum that we had in place for Ramsey Geriatric Consultant. We're having that covered by doctors that are already in, in, our, in our system. We've had conversion of two um, agency specialty doctors that worked in the A&E departments and not the consultant level, the middle grade doctor that, that are, are there all, all the time. Um, we've converted two of those people. They've joined us on the bank, which is significantly less for them to, for us to pay. Um, we have, as a result of the closure of the PPU, we've, um, we've been able to re 
uh, distribute the nursing, nursing admi and administrative staff in those areas to other parts of the hospital. Most of those nurses on those have been have been moved to, to other wards, obviously, because their specialty has been ward activity rather than specialist activities. So we've allocated those to vacancies and, and mm -hmm. other areas in the, the hospital. Um, we've also have have a plan to reduce agency staffing in theatres completely from the end of this month. Um, we've only got one person there, but we will reduce that um, from this month because he's joining us substantially as well. And we have had some reductions in consumables in theatres, etc. One of the big hitters is is actually um, going back to the discussion about drugs. So we've had, um, I'm, I'm not sure of the technicalities, I'm sorry, I'm not a pharmacy person by background, but one of the big drug spends that we've had is on, on drugs that are technically termed as biologics, which are for rheumatology and various other high-cost areas. And um, in the, the pharmaceutical industry, they've, they've made... Um, They've, they've adapted drugs so that they're now called biosimilars and they're much, much cheaper, but they have the same effect. So we've been able to swap patients from the bio... What's the term? Analogy I've, I've just used, I'm sorry. Um, biologics. Biologics to biosimilars, bio thank you. And again, on, on our spreadsheet, that's um, predicted... To, well, we know that we've already saved 60 grand a month, so it's predicted to us to save nearly 200,000 in the last quarter. It's a significant amount. But again, Mr Crookall, we're doing all that we can to avoid... Uh, reducing services to our communities yeah. and if we think about earlier discussions about Sir Jonathan's observations about efficiency etc that's perfectly appropriate um, you recall that we had the uh, the Mars program that, that reduced some of our staffing complement without any effect on services certainly from our level uh, we have um, quite assertively reduced um, the, the number of uh, senior people um, so again annualised savings there of, of not that far short of a million pounds. So we're doing what we can to um, reduce the superstructure of the organisation, to reduce back office people, to protect the front line, etc. That was Health CEO Dr Malcolm Couch and Deputy CEO Mrs Michaela Morris speaking to the Public Accounts Committee earlier this week. What does the Health Minister make of all this? Well, the first thing, as you just said, it's a forecast at the moment. Um, so it's not guaranteed, it's not written in stone. Um, in terms of that 3.5, just to put it into context, 2.1 that's built in there is a pay deal that still hasn't been agreed yet. There's the potential costs of 2.1. So in terms of actual physical overspend, we're actually looking at 1.4. And the reason it's still variable is in terms of the department's budget, that's 0.5% of budget. So although it might sound a huge figure, in terms of the department, we spend roughly around £600,000 a day. So it's about five days worth of budget. So at the moment, the 3.5 is basically what we're looking at as our top end. Um, there's no guarantees that it won't come in a lot lower than that. And like I say, 2.1 of that is made up of what we think will be the potential pay rise, um, depending on what deal is finally struck. Because obviously, as a department that employs a lot of people, um, our budgets are very, very sensitive. So in terms of what you'd purely call overspend, it's actually 1.4. Is it an overspend, Minister, or is it underfunding? No, we've had this debate many, many times, and I don't think it is underfunding. I think what we need to do in order to be able to verify that is we need to get up um, our strategies in place. We need to be looking at transferring more out of the acute side into the community. And to be perfectly honest, I've said this initially we've done some work over the last year in terms of efficiencies but I would still not hand on heart say the department is the most efficient department of government and we need to get better at that.
with the way that that's broken down then it was said yesterday from dr couch that lots of areas of the health department are in the black as it were mm-hmm. are performing fiscally quite well it's largely nobles hospital which is still the burden is something like 10 percent over its budget still Yes, and that's why the focus has got to be on getting people away from that acute care and actually driving the integrated care strategy that will actually allow us to put more into the community. Because at the moment, and I've said this before in interviews, my feeling is we're running a very antiquated old system where your first port of call for anything is the hospital. And even some of the community services we're running centrally. I already answered a key's question a couple of weeks ago about physio, how that's been centralised while we're dealing with staffing shortages but that's something that should be being delivered in the community not in an acute facility if we've got something serious outside of our gps we're sending people through the acute facility and that in this modern day and age is not practical if we fast or sorry rewind back to uh, last summer the then director of hospitals mike quinn was saying we'd save half a million pounds a year with the management restructuring process Mm -hmm. which surely is still ongoing. Where are we up to with that and what kind of changes that had? Well, the management restructuring programme, there has been savings and they have met their savings targets in relation to that. Um, the restructure is basically embedded now within within the um, organisation. The management team has been leaned out. Various posts have gone, including the chief nurse position, which I've done interviews on previously. So in terms of management, we are now leaner than we were. But like I say, the key function has got to be moving things out of the acute side and into the community that's where the big savings longer term because that allows people to continue living in their community longer and it also allows them to hopefully get a better healthcare system there was lots of discussion of um failings really of the hospital yesterday one big case study of course which has come to the media attention recently is to do with endoscopy services Is the hospital a a broken structure? Well, hang on, the endoscopy one I want to pick up on, because that's not a recent one. That that has recently been back through the media, but it actually occurred a couple of years ago now. So it's not a recent case. There are people coming forward recently with their own stories, is is what I mean. It's, It's not a problem which has been solved, clearly. Well, it is, it is because that is that is why we put the additional investment into endoscopy. But the thing with endoscopy is it's not just about the additional investment. It's got more investment now in endoscopy than at any point in its history. But what we're also seeing is a spike in demand. So it's a bit like MRIs, etc. Let's be honest, the curve is only ever going to go one way. It's not going to go down. And what we've got to do is we've got to look at why that demand is there for that particular service and then look at potentially longer term expanding the budgetary provision. But we also have to ensure that those services are run efficiently and effectively as well as safely and at the moment like I say there are efficiencies that can be made within various different areas of the service but the crucial thing you mentioned there about safety there was an issue around the endoscopy prior to me becoming minister there's been lots of work gone on in that area and of course it led to the consolidation of the endoscopy services at Nobles from it being moved from Ramsey and the figures are showing that more endoscopies than ever are being done. But if demand is going up for some services at Nobles and the, the, the spend is going down, what assurances can you well, give that the, the services aren't changing? Well, hang on, the spend isn't going down. 
That's the point. Like I say, there's been more investment than ever within the endoscopy service. They're receiving more funding than they have at any other point in the service's history. But what has happened, and we are actually undertaking more endoscopy, endoscopies than we have at any point in the service history. But what is happening is demand is outpacing the increases in funding. And that's one of the things we have to look at. And one of the things that by putting things into the community, again, there's proven studies around the world that services in the community are cheaper than providing services in an acute environment so what that will free up money for us to then be able to look at it because the simple fact is i know some people say we'll just give health whatever money it needs but where do you stop when health's 30 percent of government budget 40 percent 60 percent 70 percent because every penny and i'm acutely aware of this as minister we take in health and social care is a penny of taxpayers money that can't be spent on any other departments or any other services that the public appreciate and want such as for instance the other emergency services the police and fire brigade so within health and social care we have a duty not just to rattle the can and ask for more money but ensure that we are actually getting value for money for the existing services we're doing so not specifically to endoscopy but for nobles hospital as a whole the quality of frontline services is not going down no um, in terms of, in fact, in a lot of the in a lot of the clinical areas, they're actually going up. Um, we publish waiting list times, for instance. We publish um, various different annual reports. In terms of endoscopy, so let's take let's take endoscopy again. Um, there was a social affairs policy review committee inquiry into that. Um, I was quite unique in the fact that prior to becoming minister, I sat on the social affairs policy review committee, so I crossed over both. And we've undertaken to report annually to Timwood on those services. That was Minister of Health and Social Care David Ashford talking to me about the department's expected £3.5 million budget deficit for this financial year. At that oral evidence session, Dr Couch said the problem continues to be Nobles Hospital, which has spent around 10% more than its allocated budget to the tune of somewhere close to £10 million. From that, we can therefore infer that if you were to take Nobles out of the equation the health department would actually be registering a budget surplus of somewhere in the region of six and a half million pounds. And when you compare those figures with the situation presented at each of the past three financial years, you might say the department's made some progress in financial terms. Across those 36 months, the department recorded what was referred to as an overspend of more than £30 million. And we must also take into account that from April 2016 to March 2018, the DHSC was granted an extra £20.6 million to its budget from Treasury. Okay, I promise I'll stop firing numbers at you now, but basically what you need to know is that the health department's gone from averaging minus 10 million quid for each of the past three years to minus around three and a half million this year. A step in the right direction, you might say. So how did we get here and why does it matter? If we rewind to January of last year, the Treasury Minister Alf Cannon said government had reached a critical junction in determining the ongoing future direction of health and social care on the Isle of Man. Mr Cannon gave a lengthy address to Tinwald calling for an independent review to identify ways to deliver and afford a modern healthcare system. The continuing inability of the Department of Health and Social Care to remain within its budget is and should be a matter of concern to all those who believe in fiscally responsible government. It will also carry broader concerns for society around the effective delivery of health care and raise questions about whether or not the health care system is capable of meeting expectations within the funding allocated to it. 
Last year, I presented to Tinwald a five-year financial plan detailing the availability of funding for the broad range of public services that government is committed to delivering against the backdrop of continued need for government to redefine its service delivery to meet rather than exceed its income gener generated predominantly from direct and indirect taxation. In doing so, I made it clear that departments needed to maintain strong cost controls to meet the fiscally sustainable <coughs> targets that we have set. It cannot therefore be seen as acceptable for the Department of Health and Social Care to continually exceed its budgets each year and seek a supplementary vote from Tinwald, and in doing so, jeopardise our targeted plans and possibly lead to restricted funding available for other areas of the public service. It is, of course, not new for the DHSC to overspend, but not at the levels we are currently seeing. £9.9 million in 2016, £11.1 million in 2017, and now £9.5 million in 2018. £30.5 million of deficit funding required in the last three years, and that is in addition to the £11 million we gave the department in additional funding in the budget last year. I will provide an update on our financial performance this year as part of my budget speech next month, but I can report today that we are able to cope with the additional expenditure required from within the revenue account without the need to draw on reserves. However, Mr President, this ability to cope with the requested overspend should not be accepted as a panacea to the underlying challenges lying behind this overspend. We have, I might suggest, reached a critical junction in determining the ongoing future direction of health and social care on our, on our island, but determining the direction is going to need more than just acceptance of the status quo. In a nutshell, the problem is, at present, there is no clear evidence upon which to conclude whether the budget is too low or whether our health and social care services are not appropriately, appropriately designed and or efficiently delivered. So the extent of the problem is not simply restricted to the short-term requirement to manage within an annual budget, but with an ageing population, changes in technologies, better and more advanced treatments and increasing service expectations, there are significant long-term implications too. That was the Treasury Minister, Alf Cannon, addressing Tinwald colleagues on the 16th of January last year. William King joins me in the studio. William, what did you take from that? Thanks, Dolan. Um, the quote that stood out for me at the time was, it cannot be seen as acceptable for the Department of Health and Social Care to continually exceed its budgets each year and seek a supplementary vote from Tinwald, and in doing so, jeopardise our targeted plans and possibly lead to restricted funding available for other areas of the public service. It is, of course, not new for the Department of Health and Social Care to overspend, but not at the levels we are currently seeing. A 9.9 million deficit in 2016, 11.1 million in 2017, 9.5 million in 2018. This week we learnt it's expected to be 3.5 million in 2019, and with the 2018-19 budget to be made public on Tuesday, I wonder what the Treasury Minister will make of that news. 
In the September 2018 sitting of Tim Ward, Dewan Watterson, Speaker of the House, asked the Health Minister what the department's net and budgeted spend to date are and whether he forecasts that the department will come in our budget in 2019. The Minister replied that at the end of July, the department's net spend was £69.61 million against a net budget of £68.57 million. So, just more than a million pounds down. He said the department estimates its projected outturn on a monthly basis, with a more detailed forecast prepared quarterly, and that there is scope for significant variation in the year-end forecast with the numbers changing by material amounts each month. Crucially, Mr Ashford said that said at the time that the... Uh, sorry. Crucially, Mr Ashford said at the current time it remains too early to provide any certainty over the position, but that a full re-forecast will be prepared after the half-year financial position is known, and the outcome of that forecast will be used to determine if we need to notify Treasury of a possible overspend. Interestingly, at the beginning of October, Isle of Man Today published an article which said Mr Ashford was confident his department would hit the 2018-19 budget target, even though his department was £1 million over the line in the first quarter. And yet, here we are. So, what can be done to bridge the gap and solve the problem? A point I made in that interview with Mr Ashford was to do with the savings in staffing. In May of last year, the then Director of Hospital Services, Mike Quinn, said the ongoing managerial restructuring at Nobles would save the department half a million pounds each year. Some members of senior management at Nobles had accepted voluntary redundancies under the mutually agreed resignation scheme, and some roles would appear to have been vacated, including the chief nurse, deputy chief nurse and deputy theatre manager. Mr Quinn said the cuts are only in management and not frontline services. He also said there are several benefits of the reorganisation. The proposed restructure of the directorate will provide improved clarity from a leadership perspective. Divisions will be replaced with care groups. The implementation of the review, which will see a reduction in management posts, will also deliver a recurring net saving of half a million pounds. We also heard Dr Couch and Mrs Morris this week talk about the department's most recent cost improvement programme, much of which revolves around reductions in staffing levels. In fact, Dr Couch said we are doing what we can to reduce the superstructure of the organisation, to reduce back office people and protect frontline services. But one of the department's biggest cost profiles relative to other jurisdictions of the NHS is consultants' pay, and that's been a theme of discussion at the series of oral evidence sessions of the Public Accounts Committee. This week, David Cretney, MLC, raised the issue once more. Uh, one of the things that's been uh, raised here before, and which I don't think we've had a definitive response on, is things such as medical consultant salaries, which have been identified in the report as being 20 to 30 percent higher. Uh, what's happening about those? Um, as I've said previously in evidence, um, the contracts that we have mirror those in England, and they're based on a concept of. Um, PAs, programmed activities. So the, the assumption is that the basic PA is half a day's work. Over the years, um, a number of our consultants, both for additional duties um, and for uh, particular clinical responsibilities, have built up contracts of more than 10 PAs per week. Some of them quite significantly more than 10 PAs. In addition, 
our base salary for consultants is significantly higher than the base salary in the UK. So if you add those two things together, you get a potentiation of the salary difference between some of our consultants and some of those that we might see in England. What, what, was, we that, do what was that word you used then? Potentiation? Hmm. Building up. Right. Thank you. Forgive me. So what are we doing about it? Well, we are aware that there is a significant disparity between um, our base salaries and UK base salaries and what's called in, in the, um, the processes related to consultants job planning. You're meant to have each year a job planning session with, with your boss uh, where there is a determination about the clinical activities you'll be performing, the administrative activities, any other duties you might have, and then there should be an annual agreement of, of what your total of, of PA should be. We've, I think, uncovered that that system, that the rolling system of each year doing a review with each consultant, in some cases has been done scrupulously and in other cases has not. So at the moment what we're doing is um, doing a review of the job planning system itself and then over the next few months there will be uh, each of the doctors who needs to have a job planning review will have one uh, which will be settling for a, a new tally if that's the right thing and we expect that that will actually drive out savings. That was Dr Malcolm Couch, CEO of the Health Department, explaining the situation regarding consultants' pay on the Isle of Man relative to their peers in the UK. After that oral evidence session of the Public Accounts Committee, I raised the topic with Minister Ashford. It was said, I think, that consultants' pay on the Isle of Man was something like 20 to 30% higher than their sort of UK equivalents, if that's fair. And that's partly to do with this PA system where they're paid kind of on a, on a half day's work, many of which over a number of years have built up more than 10 half days per week. And there's sort of ongoing work to, is it to restructure these contracts or, or talk us through that process? Yeah, the, there's ongoing, the, the, um, all the consultants work off what's termed job plans. Um, as you say, it all works off of various amounts of PAs without trying to bore your listeners to death with too much of the technical detail. Um, what the purpose of it is, is they build up so much work and activity over the period of the week, um, which is obviously NHS work. Now, what we're looking at is I've said it in interviews before, we've got out of kilter. Um, I don't believe we're in line anymore. And so what we're doing is we're undertaking reviews of those job plans across the consultants. The one thing I should point out in fairness, and I did when um, I've answered, I think, Key's questions about this, and I've done in previous interviews, um, it's unfair on some consultants for, every, for us to suggest all consultants are in that bracket. But, um, but as an average. It's, an, it's as an average across the board. So I don't want everyone thinking every single one of the 55 consultants that we have is in that bracket. They're not. The some that are actually even higher than that bracket I'm led to believe. I think one of the things we have to accept though is we're never going to be fully in line with the UK because same as with Jersey and Guernsey attracting people to work on an island there does have to be a premium but it certainly shouldn't be the amount that's currently being paid out so that is active work underway. I think Dr Couch made that point that the Isle of Man when thought of in the context of the British Isles kind of I don't know, medical circles or whatever the term would be, is thought of as a rural location and also as an island yeah. location. So we're, we're not desirable in terms of consultants' geographical mobility. Um, if we do rein in terms and conditions or, or average salaries, are we at risk of a brain drain? 
I, I don't think so because there will still be a premium. I'm not going to get into what that premium is likely to be, but it certainly won't be the average that's being talked of now. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't hope anyway. So I think there will be financial advantage. But I, but what I'm wanting to do is build. You say you know we're not really seen as being uh, you know being advantageous to consultants to come here. Well, to be perfectly frank, if you were a consultant. And with, you know, issues that are going on in the NHS across the water, would you want to be a consultant, say, in just off the top of my head, Birmingham A&E, um, with the flow through there? Or would you want to come to Douglas in the Isle of Man and deal with the flow here? Some of the consultants I've spoken to who've relocated um, to the island say it's a very different place and it's a good place to work. So what? So it's a mixture of stuff. We shouldn't just focus on pay. There's also the lifestyle here on the island. There's also the working conditions. Um, and you again, you speak to some consultants who've worked across the water and here about the working conditions, particularly on certain specialities. It can be very, very different. And I think also there's the element as well of... You know, if we get the integrated care strategy, which we've just talked about, right, then we are going to be doing something fundamentally different. And I think that brings up huge opportunities as well. So I don't think everything's always about money. And I don't think it's fair on the consultants that we seem to be suggesting that everything is all about what they're getting paid. Um, I think, you know, the vast majority of consultants want to do the job because it's a job they enjoy not because of what they're actually receiving financially. But we talk about pace of life and we talk about, um, you know, the Isle of Man being a special place to live and work, etc. But Jane Paul Wilson yesterday also made the point that in terms of productivity per pound amongst our consultants, again, it must reinforce this as an average, of course, we rank very low. So we're, we're overpaying and under expecting in terms of output. And that forms part of the job plans because, of course, the job plans don't just include what they get paid in terms of the activity. It also dictates what activity they undertake. So that's a fun reason, another reason that there's the fundamental review going on of the overall job plan because job plans aren't just about pay, they're about the activity too. And that, again, is something that I've publicly said before, I believe we're behind the curve with. And it's something that we need to actually step up and deal with. And we are doing. Just finally, Dr. Couch said, quite rightly, that's not a change that's going to be implemented overnight. What kind of timescales are we looking at to try and try and rein in these cost profiles? Well, bear in mind, consultants work off individual job plans. We have 55 consultants off the top of my head. So each one of them has to be assessed individually. So it is going to take time because it's not just a case of we turn around and say to the consultant, there's your new job plan done. We are working to it. I'd rather get it right than put a deadline scale on. And, you know, the one thing Dr. Couch is, is very realistic. And he's not going to turn around and say it's going to happen overnight. Um, as politicians, we tend to be a bit more unrealistic sometimes. I'd love to be able to turn around and say, yes, we'll just do it. And it'll all be in in about a month's time. But it's important that we do it and we get it right because these job plans should be ongoing. So if we get the activity particularly side of it, not just the pay, which we've been focusing on, but the activity side of it wrong, there's long term repercussions for that. And it isn't going to compromise frontline services? No, it most certainly isn't. In fact, to be honest, job plans are something that should be being regularly reviewed anyway, just as, you know, in any other sector, anyone's work plan should be under discussion and constant review. That's not just something unique to the health service.
That was Health Minister David Ashford there speaking to me about the news. Consultants' pay is 20 to 30% higher than equivalent positions in the UK for the time being at least. I mentioned in that interview about Jane Poole Wilson's point made during the hearing about consultants' productivity versus their pay. William King joins me. William, we've had a a comment on social media. We have, yes. um, On the Facebook post we put out earlier today, we've had a a listener tell us that she would suggest that uh, a lot of what could be seen as unnecessary spending would come from patients' lack of faith in some of the consultants here and therefore um, second opinions get requested from UK consultants and then care is continued over there and she'd be interested to see the percentage of cases per consultant here on the Isle of Man who have been requested to see another. We will see what we can do on those uh, that request there. Thank you very much, William King. Keep your views coming in. You can text us on 166-177. You can email studio at manxradio.com and any interaction on Facebook and Twitter is obviously encouraged as well. I mentioned before the break about Jane Poole Wilson's point made during the hearing about consultants' productivity versus their pay. For reference, here's an extract from that discussion. You've talked about the job planning review Mm -hmm. in terms of the cost profile. But I think Sir Jonathan Michael also talks about the fact that the productivity that we have at the hospital mm-hmm. is relatively low for the cost that yep. we put in. And I think specifically he talks about the fact that waiting times at Nobles Hospital are relatively long, targets for cancer referrals and treatment are not being met, and utilisation rates of theatres at Nobles Hospital are lower than average across the NHS in England, despite comparatively high medical consultant salaries. So what's the bigger picture about how we are... Uh, looking to get better value for the cost that's going in? I think, I think that at, at this point, uh, our approach is, is to go through sequentially with a number of projects um, based on information that we've already had from reviews that have been carried out. So, for example, last year there, there was a pilot review of the, the management of the operating theatre suite and that showed us quite clearly that um, productivity w- was a, a challenge there. Um, so I think we need, we need to go through that sequentially. So we need to do the job planning review. The job planning, um, to an extent, I think, has to say to doctors, um, this is an expected productivity level for the clinical activities that we do. I don't think that's been done in the past. Um, we need to be thinking about how the hospital flows, so how, how things run. So, for example, uh, to have the most effective operating theatre suite, um, you need to have the patients there at the right time, moving into the preparation area at the right time, uh, the anaesthetist preparing them to go into theatre at the right time and then moving to recovery at the right time. And ideally, you need to have the next patient coming in probably into preparation at the time somebody's going out to recovery. Um, so all of those things are almost like time and motion studies, so they're, they're commencing now. Um, But again, I'll come back to things that I've said to the committee a number of times before. Our challenge as leaders in terms of supporting our colleagues to change is that the culture at this point um, is, maybe the word I would use, is relaxed and and we need to be putting more pressure on um, whilst respecting the the, the needs of our staff to, to adapt to those changes. That was Dr Malcolm Couch responding to Jane Poole Wilson in the committee hearing this week. So consultants pays one of the major cost profiles holding the department back from becoming what the Treasury Minister refers to as fiscally responsible. 
but a relaxed culture, as Dr. House, uh, Dr. Couch called it, is equally cumbersome and a cultural shift is required. Another challenge facing the department involves the cost of pharmaceuticals, which is something David Cretney, MLC, also raised in this week's hearing. OK, in terms of pharmaceuticals, he identified that we're paying 33% higher here than the UK. Anything about that? We're already seeing... There are various ways of approaching this, Mr Cretney. I think one of them is that um, in England, for example, that there might be a system called a common formulary. A formulary is, is basically the list of medicines that doctors can prescribe or, or other prescribers for that matter. That's very, very common now in England that um, both in, in, in general practice world and in the hospital world that there'll be a, an agreed formulary which restricts the list of medicines because you, you could have um, medicines that are brand new, uh, that they're covered by um, the, the copyright, etc., and, and they're very expensive. There might be other ones which are generic medicines which are far cheaper. So that the formula tries to restrict things to appropriate medicines to treat people well, but to get the best cost profile. So we're moving into that world. And what we've seen is that also that the, the investment in, by the department in the number of pharmacists has been limited. And pharmacists are a very powerful professional group in terms of the control of medicines, which is not surprising. What we have seen is that we've brought in, um, with the support of uh, Treasury, we, we actually drew some money down from the Healthcare Transformation Fund, we brought some additional pharmacists into the community and we're starting to drive out formulary practices and already the costs are starting to fall. In the hospital it's somewhat different. We need, to, I think, to put more uh, effort in there. In effect, I think that, that, that there's a challenge for management saying, um, here is a list of instructions, and professionals sometimes challenging us, saying, well, we are doctors or other forms of prescribers, we should be prescribing what's best for our patients. And at the cutting edge of new medicines, that's always a challenge. Um, so, for example, um, some of the uh, medicines for um, autoimmune diseases or, or various arthritis brand new, incredibly expensive medicines. I think patients will often approach doctors and say, I've read about this in the media somewhere, I need to have that. And doctors will immediately prescribe it, and th there's no issue with that. However, the department also needs to decide what its resources are and whether we should go immediately with that, whether we should delay it in some way, or whether we should be looking to work for whether there are similar approaches. So that clearly is a concern, it's something we're managing, but I say we, we're seeing progress now, so in the, the community pharmaceuticals budget, that's actually been reduced somewhat, the hospital is still running hot. So pharmaceuticals is another cost pressure on the health department, and if you uh, believe what you read in the media from the UK, then that's bound to increase post-Brexit. William King joins me. William, we've had some more comments. We have, yeah. We've had a text in from a man called David H., who's commented that the uh, health minister frequently mentions activity at Nobles and within his department, but surely productivity is more important. And I think that is, uh, that's probably true because activity may not be productive sometimes. Will, we um, we ran a poll before this programme. Tell us what's, what's we going We did, on yes, this morning. Um, we put out a poll on Twitter asking if people thought that the Department of Health going over budget should be considered an overspend or an underspend. 
and we had some an, good... An, an underfund. Either. Sorry, yes, an <laughs> overspender and underfund. Uh, thank you. And 70% said it was an underfund, which is uh, an interesting statistic. 30% saying overspend. Thank you very much, William King. You've been listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. This hour, we've been talking about the anticipated overspend, as bit as it's been termed, or underfund, as perhaps you might prefer, for the 2018-19 financial year. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. You are listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. As always, we're keen to hear, I always get that wrong, your views on this. You can text us on 166177, email us at studio at manxradio.com and we can also hear from you on Twitter. You can use the hashtag MRPerspective. So here's the exchange from this week's oral evidence session where Mrs Michaela Morris, who's credited as the author of the Island's Integrated Care Vision document, and Dr Malcolm Couch were interrogated by members of the committee on the topic. I was there, and the atmosphere in the room was uncomfortable at best. We open with Chris Robertshaw, MHK. You talk about listening and working with the island residents um, and understanding the population, but I think the committee were a little bit um, concerned that uh, a lot of the references which had been personalised to the Isle of Man in terms of names were actually uh, cut and paste um, uh, commentary from residents in Wigan and I, I just wonder whether you think that was appropriate if, if we're personalising care to our people in the west and the south and the north etc why are we referencing commentaries made by people in Wigan because they uh, they actually resounded with the commentaries that we had um, found from the from the island ourselves. Um, certainly, in in the pilot in the west, we have um, we've been since since it started in April. We've had um, lots of engagement um, going on, and I, I think just referring to the document in front of me here, um, there's a statistic. Sorry, I'll have it shortly. Um, the, the project team have engaged and consulted with over 836 people and 98 organisations in the West. So we have had all of that. And, all, and, and although... Um, so why, didn't we, why didn't we... You, if you've done all our work, and I don't doubt you I, for one absolutely. moment, I mean, and congratulate you on it, but why didn't we then use the references from the local people? Why did we transplant commentary from another jurisdiction altogether? That just seemed strange to the committee. Um, there sort of isn't an answer there. Chair, yeah. I, that's the end of my questions. Yeah, well, I, no, I will, I'll just pick up on that theme um, because it, it's not just the, um, the examples um, which are word for word what Wigan um, had in their examples with the names changed and of course they live in Douglas rather than, um, than the outskirts of Wigan. But it's the whole document. Over half of this document is a copy, cut and paste, word for word... What, what, what Wigan produced in, in 2014. I mean, all the bits in, in yellow in this document are word for word what Wigan put in their strategy. This is not a Manx strategy, is it? This is the Wigan strategy that's been brought to bear on the Isle of Man. 
It's, it's certainly, and I, I acknowledged that. And it's in the back of the document. There is acknowledgments to Wigan Council for for having access to it and, and using it. And it's certainly when when the when the vision document was being discussed first in the department, uh, Minister asked for a number of examples to be brought so that he could see how they they were put together and what styles they were in. And and I brought four three examples to the department and the Wigan example was the one that people felt was the best style. It, it doesn't say that it doesn't give them credit for writing it because it does say here the text is is by yourself um, but it does give a passing thanks to um, special thanks to Wigan Council in the scheme of everybody else but I, I think it's slightly um, I would you not agree that it's slightly deceiving to say that this is an Isle of Man vision. This is Wigan's vision with an Isle of Man title on it, is it not? It's, it's very much the vision that, that fits well for the island. It's, it's absolutely very similar to one in Wigan, but certainly integrated, the visions for integrated care are very similar across the whole world. Um, this, this particular integration um, vision is, is about the people on the island and so it's very much and certainly all the work that we're doing in the pilot for it is all about the local population and the engagement with them and, um, and the organisations that we're working with so it's very much bespoke to the island although based on something that We can't even come up with Manx examples of, of people we've literally just drawn them off um, what, what, what would concern the committee here is that we say we understand um, the issue we've brought um, a Manx solution, um, but it isn't a Manx. It isn't a Manx document. I, I just don't understand how. Is I mean, is it? It's either we're such a similarity to Wigan, which has a population of three hundred thousand people, lives on the end of uh, edge of Greater Manchester, and have very poor health outcomes from from what I've read about Wigan in the last sort of couple of weeks, or it's just laziness, and I'm not sure which it is. Why Wigan? I don't think it's laziness. It, it's very similar to discussions earlier in, in today's session where. Um, many people would accept or expect the DHSC to bring in nice guidelines. I think we're at least open and honest about that, and I don't think we, we have been about this. Uh, you're, you're comfortable that we've transplanted the Wigan document to the Isle of Man? Without... Our document is based on the Wigan document, yeah. yes. Um, but again, that's, that's looking around for what we consider to be good practice elsewhere well, and relying on it. So rather than creating a, a completely Manx wheel... Hmm. Um, you say the, the Wigan model has been successful then? It has, actually, yes. I think there are, there's, there's uh, been recent uh, publication of... And, and, and Wigan are often uh, asked to uh, speak at conferences on integration. Mm. I mean, the, the, just to give you the credit for an area that has been changed from the Wigan document, um, the Wigan document has in its Section 10 outcomes and what they intend to achieve roughly by what. Um, we've removed that and put in um, a whole page about what an outcome is. So our vision doesn't even have outcomes in it that we're going to hold ourselves to. I mean, that, that waters it down somewhat. We haven't even got our aims and ambitions for what we're trying to achieve, whereas at least Wigan did try in, in a somewhat awkward way to, to, to put something in. Why is that? Because we wanted to be able to specify those in relation to the pilot first, um, and that's that's what we have in the in the implementation plans and the 
the work around the pilot. The, the pilot in the West is the most tangible aspect of the, the delivering of this uh, vision. And so we wanted to base it on that, and that's what the Foundations for Integrated Care document. You said we can't roll out the pilot in the West around the whole of the island because needs are subtly different from the West, the North, the South. Well, surely they're going to be massively <coughs> different between Wigan and the Isle of Man. Um, so why have we taken the, the, the strategy and the vision from, from, from Wigan? Why, why, why Wigan? I think you've, you've perhaps I, I haven't put it across particularly well around um, the, the pilot in the West being something that it, I believe it is bespoke to the West. But what I'm trying to convey is that we want, we want the integrated model to be right for each area in the community for the island. And so when I say that it may not be replicable in other areas, I don't mean that in a, in a generalism. I think it can possibly be. But, it, it, work, but what I'm trying to say is you shouldn't pick something off the shelf and say it will work in one area and be, work exactly the same in another. That's what we've done, though, isn't it? N not particularly, no, because generally th this vision is this is a general vision. Mm -hmm. The bespoke part is what go what goes on in the in the West with around this document about foundations for integrated care pertinent to the people in the West, um, and we'll learn from that to know whether it is. Um, so, so can I just what, what, one more if I can before I bring others in? Um, the Wigan document was written in 2014, so they have now five years of putting that into practice. Um, apart from speaking at conferences, what is it that makes us think that they are on the right road and they are actually achieving success? What's the evidence that they're doing that? I, I haven't got the update on that in front of me to be able to, sh to share with you, but, but I know that it's been based on... Um, Work that's been that's been led by the local authority, which is why it's 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 something that works particularly well for place-based integration, and that's why again we we chose to go down that route rather than than it to be particularly all about the medical profession and health particularly because it's about the whole whole system working well together. So it's been picked by the way it's been put together and what sort of feels it fits rather than any sort of evidence-based solutions that are coming out of Wigan to show that this is working. Well, the, yes, the, I mean, this is a description of um, an integrated care approach. What, what we have in the Isle of Man will be a Manx system. Um, if we think about Mr. Robertshaw's uh, references earlier to Birdsorg, um, I think that they feel that the optimal population catchment is probably in the 20 to 30,000 region. So, 15 to 22. Yeah, but it, so we, we could have, let's say, four regions in the Isle of Man. Our challenge then comes, and we need to test this on the ground, because in the south, part of the south, of course, because people in Castletown may not agree that Port Erin is, is all of the south. We have a cluster of buildings and a cluster of services, as we do in Ramsey, and not everybody would agree that Ramsey is the whole of the north, as we do in Douglas. But in, if, if we have, let's say, four regions, part of our thinking then has to be, should we have a central facility in those regions to dispatch people from, to draw people into, etc.? So I don't think any of these things will have a defined endpoint. And, and I go back to the concept of the duties of the Secretary of State in the UK. One of those duties is to foster continuous improvement. Right, Mr Colster. Yeah, can I just ask two questions, if possible, Mr Chairman? 
Firstly, um, Michaela, can I ask that maybe the department provides the evidence to the committee to show how successful the Wigan programme has been over the last five years, just so we can measure the successes if we're taking that as being the benchmark. Secondly, could I just ask um, maybe possibly Mr Couch or yourself with regard to the minister and the political members, they, were they actually um, aware of how much this, the, our vision has actually been copied and pasted from Wigan? I can, can confirm that there is certainly um, Minister and I believe nearly all, I, I would imagine all of the, the members did, I'll have to confirm that, but there, as I say, the Wigan document was presented to the department meeting in its entirety. But were they made aware that this was a copy and paste from the they, Wigan They've model? seen both versions. That was Mrs Michaela Morris and Dr Malcolm Couch there speaking to the Public Accounts Committee. So what does the Health Minister have to say about this? Well, I spoke to David Ashford the day afterwards. I must ask you about the integrated care vision, mm -hmm. the document brought up. Now, the Speaker of the House of Keys, Jim Watterson, raised um, the point that the, the document presented, which has been scrutinised by the Public Accounts Committee, is predominantly, and it is more than half of the document, <laughs> is a direct replica of one produced five years ago in Wigan. Is, is, is that right, Minister? Yes, it is. And in fact, I would suggest that the reason the Public Accounts Committee know that is because in the document we actually acknowledge Wigan. Um, so you, I think you, that's you, the reason you why. You acknowledge special thanks to Wigan, but yeah. it then also says authored by Michaela Morris. Yeah, because there is a lot of manx sections within there. So, for instance, you say the majority of it, but that's the vision itself. And you've just hit the nail on the point, which I think I should clear up because certain elements of the media, um, not Manx Radio, I don't think I've heard it from Manx Radio, have called it the integrated care strategy. The document being referred to is not the strategy. The document referred to, as you rightly say, is a vision. So it's a high-level vision. The department looked at six or seven different types of vision of integrated care at, to what was already out there that would best fit the island. And the one we felt best fitted the island was Wigan. So if you actually look at the document, so for instance, you've got the section of the third sector, which was written by the third sector over here. You've got um, the integrated care model at Ramsey that's unique to the island in that document. You've got the strategic plan for mental health and young people, that's unique. Um, the public health data within it is Isle of Man public health data, including references to the public health director's report. You've got the demographic data of the Isle of Man in there, all of that is actually unique. What isn't unique in the document is the overall vision, because we believe that's a vision that fits with the Isle of Man strategy for integrated care and what we need to deliver. And I think one other key point I want to make as well is there seems to be some confusion where, again, it's gone out and said that the case studies in the document are not unique to the Isle of Man. They've just been people's names and so on have just been switched. What I, can say, what I need to point out is the bits that have been switched round are the examples, which in the Wigan one is just examples of the type of care you should expect. The case studies in the document, which are on pages um, 35 to 37, are unique Isle of Man case studies. But it's billed as a Manx document tailor-made to the Isle of Man in terms of the vision, in terms of this plan we've got going forward, but it's just... It's just a reshaping of a document from the UK well, so, with, a, with a different populace. Well, Wigan's got a, a different population, different kind of economic, uh, social kind of criteria and, and, and in the population. So how, how is that something which which applies here? Well, firstly, with due respect, I don't think it is just a document that's, uh, that, you know, that, that has been billed as this unique Isle of Man document. 
and that it's been tailored. In fact, in my speech launching Integrated Care Strategy, if I remember rightly, I actually, um, the vision document, I actually turned around and said that it was thanks to Wigan. Um, and we had people from the UK over speaking at the integrated care launch. So I don't think there's been any attempts to conceal it. It's the first time it's been really raised and asked. But in relation to, you mentioned about Wigan's demographics, that's what I'm saying. It's a vision. The strategies below it, which are the projects that form offer to deliver integrated care, such as the Western Pilot we're currently doing, are uniquely Manx. So a vision doesn't just look at the demographics, it looks at the individual care being delivered in the community. Now there were other ones that we looked at, so for instance um, around the UK, that we didn't feel met with WAR requirements, so that's why we went particularly with the Wigan model. And one thing I do want to pick up on as well, I believe it was suggested there's not much proof of the Wigan strategy um, actually working. Well, in which case, people who are saying that haven't looked very far because Wigan suffered one of the biggest budget cuts going across the UK. Yet since they brought this document in and they've started rolling the projects off from it, their looked after children numbers have been reducing year on year. Their adult social care made a surplus last year compared to most of the UK where there's a huge overspend. Um, there's, they've got one of the lowest levels of delayed transfer of care. They are the only outstanding CQC re-enablement um, re service identified by CQC and their internal staff satisfaction surveys are rising. And quite ironically, the timing of the PAC yesterday, Wigan is due this afternoon at 3.50 to speak to the King's Fund conference on the success of their integrated care project. How much did this report or the vision cost to produce? basically next to nothing because it was done in-house. Um, that's one of the reasons as well why we decided, rather than going out for really expensive um, redevelopment of a vision unique, absolutely unique to the island, we felt that if there's a vision out there and it's working, why shouldn't we do it in the Isle of Man? And again, I, I don't quite get it with the Public Accounts Committee because they seem to, they seem to be acting as if this is unique. If there's something out there, and other departments have done it over the years as well, um, and the speaker himself has been a former minister, so he knows about strategies and legislation. If it's been embedded and it's working, and one of the reasons we took the Wigan one is because it's been in place five years, so we've got a record of it working, and we feel it fits the Isle of Man, why shouldn't we? So is it common practice to effectively copy and paste documents from other jurisdictions, which we think might apply here? Well, again, this focuses on copy and paste. The only bit that is copy and pasted is the overall vision bit. Everything else tied into it, such as the demographic data, the public health data, the strategies are all Manx. So there's this absolute obsession being made on what is the overall vision. If this was some fundamental strategy document that laid out step by step how we were going to do integrated care in the Isle of Man and it had just been picked up from Wigan, Birmingham, Edinburgh, I could understand the fuss. But when you're talking a high level vision document, I, I don't quite see where the problem is. Um, I, I think actually I would hope that what this encourages people to do is go online and actually read the document and actually see what it is. But when you have over half the document word for word identical to one from across, and yes, it acknowledges with special special thanks to Wigan, mm. but it then says authored by Mrs. Michaela Morris, and it has 
all rights reserved, you know, the normal kind of legal spiel, yeah. do not reproduce this without permission. It feels like plagiarism. Well, in relation to the all rights reserved, that goes on all government publications. And at the end of the day, this vision document is a government publication, including, for instance, the graphics and everything else that's put in it. So ultimately, the ultimate author, which you have to have someone responsible for a document, is Michaela Morrissey, who is leading the integrated care strategy. But like I say, we acknowledge Wigan. Um, there's been no attempt to hide the fact that our vision is in line with Wigan's. And in fact, you know, like I say, if we've got a model that's already in place somewhere, it's working there, we believe it is suitable for the Isle of Man, we should be picking up that vision. And what matters at the end of the day isn't the high-level vision. What matters is the bit underneath it, which is the projects that flow off that vision to deliver integrated care on the ground. And quite rightly, they are all going to be Manx 100% projects. So again, I go back to the wet pilot in the West which we're currently running the integrated care pilot, which I believe is going very successfully at the moment. Um, so that is 100% Manx. And like I say, the strategies that are mentioned within the vision document and referred to, such as, for instance, the young people's strategy, the mental health strategy, they are all Manx strategies. I think you can see why people would feel aggrieved, though, when you have case studies with a name in the Wigan document and a, a location where they live and they are word for word taken. The names changed, the places where these people are living are changed and they're used as representative examples in the Manx, well, well, hang, in the Manx, hang, hang in the Manx document. Hang on, I need to take issue with that because what you're referring to there in the Wigan document are not case studies. They're the examples as to how integrated care works. So they're not actually real case studies so were they were they hypothetical they're in the hypothetical first place? examples that's the way and this is where the confusion's coming in they're the ones that have had the names changed the actual case studies in wiggins document um i don't think off the top of my head there are any individual case studies because it was brand new them coming you know the coming out with the document five years ago our case studies are contained on pages 35 to 37 of the document and they are uniquely manx ones the ones you're referring to which are the examples are pages 8 to 10 but will you concede that what we have rather than being a tailor-made vision for an island community bespoke to our needs is actually the vision of a city a town in the uk which has been sculpted and reshaped to apply to us Yes, most definitely. And as I've said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think if we've got something out there, elsewhere, and it's working, and we believe that it fits with us, why shouldn't we be introducing it? At the end of the day, would people rather that we went out and did everything absolutely bespoke? In fact, I, I, when I, before I was an MHK, when I was a Douglas councillor, one of my biggest criticisms that I used to level at government was where they went out and reinvented the wheel, where they spent thousands upon thousands reinventing the wheel, if not tens of thousands in some cases, reinventing the wheel, when you could point to something and say, well, actually, that's already there and it's working be it, you know, Canada, New Zealand, United Kingdom, wherever, why aren't we looking to do something off that? And as I say, we've got to remember, this is a vision document. So it's the high level vision of how we believe integrated care should work. The practicalities of that, which are the projects and the strategies that flow off that, are 100% Manx, and quite rightly so. I think the bigger scandal would be if we had a tailor-made vision and then all the strategies were just taken from other places because the strategies are the things on the ground and they are the things that need to be tailored uniquely, not just to demographics, but to the individual small communities on the island. 
I was at the hearing and I witnessed Mr. Speaker Duan Watterson question the CEO and Deputy CEO, and they looked they looked physically rattled, quite personally rattled by the line of questioning. You don't feel they have a reason to be or had a reason to be? I don't think so. I mean, it, I would. Ima- I mean, I've done these hearings. I've got to actually say, you know, I've been on both sides. I've sat on the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee, and as Minister, I've appeared before um, the various committees. And you know, it's always can be quite an intimidating experience in relation to Miss Morris. It's the first time I believe she's ever appeared before a Timwood hearing, and I think it's quite natural to be nervous. Um, in terms of them being rattled, I wasn't there, so I can't say on that. But you know. I, I think, obviously, you don't get a list of questions beforehand, so you don't know what the committee's going to ask. So I think naturally pausing and thinking about what your answer will be, or in fact even saying you don't have that information to hand on certain occasions is just quite natural. Um, you know, it's it's not, you know, committee hearings can be quite intimidating places sometimes. So this practice of adapting uh, a vision or a strategy or document from elsewhere, perhaps in in the British Isles, adapting it to fit to the Isle of Man to the extent where over half of it is is basically a word for word replica. Is is that common practice? Is that is that something that's done elsewhere as well, well? Well, like I say, if it works, why not? But I think again, you keep mentioning the over the half document, but you're not saying which half. The half that is actually word for word Wigan is the high level vision of how integrated care work, actually works at the top, top level. The half you're not quoting, which is bespokely Manx, is first of all the strategies, so the children's, stra- sorry, the young people's strategy, the mental health strategy, all the population data and demographic data in there is Manx, and also the public health report, and of course the example given of the Ramsey integrated care model. You've got the case studies as well, which are the actual case studies, not the examples ones, which are basically just examples of how integrated care should work for different demographics of people. So actually the half that is most important in the document, to my mind, is the half that is 100% unique to us. So if the Isle of Man DHSC produced a document wrote at the bottom the normal stuff you know you cannot reproduce without permission of the author mm-hmm. and another jurisdiction in the UK wanted to to borrow the document from us that the, the same principles would apply I would be quite happy with that in fact in fact actually to be honest I would find it quite a unique compliment if anyone picked up an Isle of Man DHSC document and said this is what we're wanting to do and in fact one of the things I would actually point out is we have had things similar like that happen where after the West Midlands reviews having spoken to some of the people on the panel they see practice over here that they said they were going to go back to their NHS trusts and start implementing those policies and procedures because they thought it was a good way to do. I think it'd be a great accolade for the Isle of Man if any of our policy and procedure documents were picked up and reproduced across the water. I think it's something we should hold up as a trophy. Health Minister David Ashford there. William King, some comments coming in. Yes, a nobles nurse has texted us to say that if Mr Ashford believes and then repeats what he is told, then one has to question his intelligence. Bonzo Slater has sent us a message um, saying that if it's a question of leadership, then uh, Couch and Morris need to look in the mirror. And also we've had Sean in blaming a lack of communication in management. As I mentioned at the top of this half of the programme, one MHK described the revelations as absolutely disgraceful and inexcusable. Those were the words used in a tweet by Ramsey MHK, Laurie Hooper. I got the views of Mr Hooper himself. So it would appear our 
Vision for the best small island health and care system delivering longer, healthier lives, quote-unquote, is somewhat similar to Wigan's 2014 vision for the future of integrated care. You said, um, if you don't mind me reading it, on Twitter, this is absolutely disgraceful, clearly highlights real problems with the culture and management in DHSC, which are getting harder and harder to pretend don't exist. Was there any political oversight of the development of this strategy? Will anyone stand up and take responsibility? Uh, Minister Ashford has stood up and taken responsibility, I suppose. And from what I can gather, there was political oversight of the development of the vision. Um, What do you make of his comments, first of all? Quite unusual, actually. Um, The Public Accounts Committee did ask uh, very specifically whether or not politicians in the department knew that the the document that's been presented as an Isle of Man vision was more than 50%, apparently, uh, lifted word for word from the Wigan strategy. The response after some moments of what I can only imagine were very uncomfortable silence in that room. Uh, the response was that the politicians had seen both documents, but there was no confirmation that, yes, they definitely knew this was the case. And then obviously the ministers come out and said, no, no, he was fully aware that, that uh, this was a very similar in a lot of ways to the Wigan document. So there's a bit of a contradiction there, which I'd hope the Public Accounts Committee themselves would pick up and look at. Um, personally, I'm not convinced by that. Um, it, to be fair, the, the document itself and the way that this has come out doesn't really bode well for the openness and transparency of that department. It doesn't make me feel that they are really on the ball at all. To quote from the, uh, it's pretty standard kind of spiel at the bottom of the document, it says, all rights reserved, no part of this publication may be reproduced or transmitted in any, any form by any means, yeah. uh, etc., um, without prior permission in writing from Michaela Morris. But... Um, I mean, Minister Ashford argues this isn't plagiarism, but do you do you agree with that? I'd say that they're quite lucky that the Wigan document didn't have the same disclaimer on the bottom. Uh, I mean, when you're writing a thesis, a paper, an essay, a piece of schoolwork, a strategy, whatever it is, you're obviously going to draw from a wide range of sources. But the correct thing to do is to identify which parts of your document are coming from those sources. And if you're quoting from those sources to make that abundantly clear, what's happened in this case is that that hasn't happened. Um, there is a, a small acknowledgement, I think, on the back page. That, Thank you very much to William Council. Yes, it uh, says, says with special thanks, but yeah. that, that doesn't imply that the, the document has been, no, has my, been borrowed. My, my real concern with this document, especially with the Minister comments this morning he was talking about people just misunderstanding and actually the 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 examples in there are only examples the bits that are specifically quoted as being from manx people are genuinely from manx people this this is the bit that i think i think i referenced as case studies which which aren't case studies as such but uh, you know representative examples given and i think i think the minister's probably right there that the representative examples are just examples the case studies he claims are fully manx my my concern with that is uh, there is a page in the document which I'll, i'll read to you now it's near the start it says we listen to what people would like to see from their health and care service and then it goes on to say this is feedback from the focus groups held in 2017 in the south and west of the island and then there are five statements beneath that the problem is those five statements did not come from the working groups in the south and west of the island those five statements were lifted word for word from the Wigan strategy and so if at one point they're saying this is real genuine honest feedback from Manx people but then they're pasting in comments from the Wigan document how much reliance can we have when the minister says well those Manx statements aren't real but the the other ones are I promise Uh, I'm not I'm not sold and the minister also says this kind of practice is is relatively common um does that sort of inspire faith in the the work undertaken behind the scenes? 
It, it doesn't. I, I would challenge that. I would say that uh, utilizing bits from other places definitely is common. You take the best bits, the bits that you want to keep. Uh, but to lift word for word uh, more than half of a, a vision strategy, whatever you want to call it, uh, I would suggest that is not relatively common. And from my own experience, I've never worked in an organization where any member of staff would have felt that doing that would have been appropriate to, to just copy and paste a massive chunk and say, this is my work. That I've never worked anywhere that will be considered acceptable. And so it makes me really question the, the management culture, the leadership culture in that department where a member of staff or, or several members of staff, I don't know who has actually written this piece, have, have felt that it would be acceptable to do that, uh, especially at, at such a high level, especially with a document that is essentially it's gone before one of our Tinwald Select Committees. Well, about half an hour before um, the Speaker of the House accused Jim Watterson kind of revealed his... Uh, findings about the similarities they asked uh, mrs michaela morris who the author was she said it was her she did uh, give some reference to some sort of third party input i think and some other contributors but you know at that point anyway she had said she was the author author of the document yeah i asked a question in december last year about the integrated care strategy um, because one of the actions in the program for government is to develop and implement this strategy so it, it was concerning, firstly, that, that the answer I got back referenced this document as if it were the strategy document. And we've heard the minister already say, no, this isn't a strategy, this is a vision. So there's been a bit of inconsistency there. Is it strategy or is it is it not? Because at one point, I mean, two, a month ago, they were claiming this was the strategy document and now they're kind of saying it isn't. Um, but in response to that question, the minister stated this document was largely informed by 14 engagement sessions held with key stakeholders in May 2018. It turns out, actually, the document was largely informed by copying and pasting from the Wigan document. And so really, I think what you've just said about behind the scenes, that's where I have my real concerns, is how much work has gone into this? How much understanding is there? I mean, if, if I'm just going to copy and paste from somewhere else, is that do I really understand what I've just copied and pasted or not? Whereas at least if I've, I've read it, I've interpreted it, I've applied the best bits, it shows that I do understand what I'm writing, what I'm talking about, which is why plagiarism is such a big deal in academic and educational circles. You don't just copy and paste because it, it doesn't prove anything. So really, I think you're right. What is, going on, what is going on behind the scenes? What is the controls over this process? What, I mean, how robust is the review process in the department? If this has managed to go from someone's desk right the way through the politicians, right the way through to approval, uh, and actually no one's noticed, or if they have noticed, they've, they've been okay with it. I'm led to believe as well that the five-year oral health strategy, which was um, from 2011 to 2016, uh, may also have been largely borrowing from a previous document in Salford so if I mean I, I don't want to cast aspersions but if this is something which is more common practice than perhaps we realize mm. um, is, is is that a concern or is that something which you think is or should be common but I don't know what are, what are your views on that I think like I've already said that it, it, I think it's perfectly acceptable to, to pick the best bits of someone else's strategy and say this is good we're going to apply this to, to our island. And um, they did that with the road safety strategy, for example. They've taken international best practice and they've said, we're going to apply this to the island. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, but what you shouldn't be doing is taking someone else's piece of work and then passing it off as if it was a purely independent, original researched idea, which is kind of how this comes across. It comes across as being this is ours, that we've developed ourselves. All the references to how it was developed have been, well, we've worked with stakeholders on the Isle of Man, we've had focus groups on the Isle of Man, and then they've printed outputs from those focus groups that actually haven't come from those focus groups. They've come from Wigan. Minister Ashford says there's been no attempt made to, to hide the fact that it was... Um, borrowed from Wigan. 
I, I, I'm not sure about that. And like I say, the, if you look back at the, the, the answer that I got in December, no reference at all in that to, to a Wigan document. Nowhere did they say, actually, yes, we've, we've taken it almost half the document, over half the document from somewhere else. And whilst they may not have de deliberately gone out of their way to, to hide it, it's never been mentioned, it's never been highlighted before, as far as I'm aware, that, that this is where they've got the document from. The reference has always been to those local stakeholder groups working with the community to develop a strategy that suits the Isle of Man. That's always been the message, the language we're hearing. And now all of a sudden we find out that that might not be the whole story. And so whilst I obviously can't dispute with the minister that he says he's never tried to hide it, but I, I can accept that statement, but equally, they've never been entirely honest about where it's come from. I think it's probably the best way I'd, I'd phrase it. Just quickly go to William King for one final comment. William. Yes, from Stephen, he says that in the absence of party politics on the Isle of Man, this highlights the importance of the Timwold's scrutiny committees. You've been listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Join us next week for more. In the meantime, Gareth Shukarail, take care.